Um, well, good morning. Welcome to the Vine. Yeah, the, the, uh, we are spending this summer in the parables of Jesus. And uh, so we encourage you, if you can, bring a Bible. There's Bibles, though, at the back on the tables that you can grab and use as well. Of course, you can use your smartphone also if you've got the Bible app or whatever. That's Certainly we do allow that as well. So anyway, uh, we'll be in Matthew 18 today, so you can go ahead and turn there as I kind of take a few minutes to get us introduced this morning. But, uh, you know, uh, I was a pastor in Iowa City for many years before I came, and one of the main responsibilities I had there was with music and arts and things of that nature. And after several years of ministering there, we had the idea that we'd go ahead and form a visual arts team. And the idea would be to kind of rally all the artists who worked with visual media to uh, be a part and equipped and using their gifts for the Lord. And I remember in uh, the very first meeting we had, there was a woman I'd never seen before. She was a middle-aged woman by the name of Anne. And she uh, had long black uh, dreadlocks and was very, very quiet and wore a long black dress. matter of fact, every time from that day forward I ever saw her, that's what she was wearing. And it took me a little while to get to know Anne, but, but not too long, and, and I sat down and got to hear her story, this very, very moving story. Um, she was raised by a Buddhist and an atheist. So mother was a Buddhist, dad was an atheist, and her mother passed away of cancer at a very young age. And without her mother there uh, to protect her, her father then uh, would give her over for sexual favors with, uh, with his friends. And uh, so it was a devastating, kind of tragic, abusive environment. And uh, she said, despite the fact that her father behaved in such a dishonorable way, for some reason he permitted her on Sunday mornings to leave the house. And so she um, walked a few blocks to an area church and began every Sunday, um, have it going to Sunday school and to, to worship. And it was then that she met her Savior, the Lord Jesus. And uh, she said that was just a solace for her life. Now, eventually her dad passed away, and God just began to heal those wounds. Um, And then she went eventually to work for the Billy Graham Association. She was a writer there. And uh, by God's grace, he provided her a husband, and they had a couple kids. And then one dark day, they were out driving, and a drunk driver hit their car. And it killed her husband and two children. And, uh, you know, this was a woman who knew pain in a very, very significant way. And I remembered as she was sharing her testimony with me, just thinking to myself, how in the world could Anne ever have the power to forgive? How could she have the power to forgive? Now, um, many of us may not be able to identify with the tragedy of that story. Uh, Many of us can Uh, But whatever your situation, um, I know that we've all had stories and times in our life where we have experienced trauma at the hands of another. And what I want us to know is that the good news for us today is that the Bible is not silent on our response in those issues. The Bible speaks very relevantly to these things. And in today's parable in Matthew 18, what we're going to learn from Jesus is ultimately how we as Christians, those of you who who uh, have given your life to the Lord as a Christian and as a Christ follower, how is it that you can have the power to forgive? So let's go ahead and uh, turn now, Matthew 18. We're going to look at verses 21 all the way through 35. So let me go ahead and read. 
as we follow along with God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began choking him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that your word, as it's characterized in the Bible, that it would be like a double-edged sword, cutting in and cutting, going out. Lord, that is a powerful illustration for what it is that you do through your word. And so we pray, Lord, just that, that your word would speak today. Lord, and I ask personally that I would get out of the way of that, that this would truly be a spirit-filled moment because you are here and because your word speaks. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in these first two verses of this story, we, we hear, uh, get a little, I guess, background in terms of why it is that Jesus launched into this parable. You see, a very familiar Jewish proverb of the day taught that a person is expected to forgive up to three times. And so Peter came to Jesus with this question, right? How many times am I to forgive? As many as seven times? Now, to Peter, that probably felt pretty impressive, right? He's like, wow, I'm not, I'm not as lowly or shooting, you know, as narrowly as the Jews who only forgive three times. No, certainly we must forgive seven. Well, of course, Jesus blew Peter and he blew the Jewish norms of the day completely out of the water when he said in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, Jesus' response, it was dramatic. It really was. To the audience, it had to have taken them off guard. This is a new teaching. It's really uh, what we see as we study this. It's, a, it's an overstatement. It's a form of hyperbole. With such a large number, he was the, making the point that we shouldn't even keep track. That as often as we are asked, we should be ready to forgive. And then he launches into this story saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. 
So we should sit up and pay attention. Let me just read those first few verses of that of that parable, verses 23 through 27, to remind us. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So here we see this king. Hey, it's time to settle my debts. So he calls all those who owe him, and he demands payment. As we see in verse 24, this servant, he owed 10,000 talents. Now, when I looked at the commentaries to try and get a little you know, contemporary reference on what perhaps that could mean, I read everything from $7 million to $1 trillion dollars. You see, the talent, though, it was the largest form of currency in the Roman Empire, and 10,000 was the largest number that could be spoken in the Greek language at that day. So this means, again, Jesus was making a bigger statement, almost a, a statement of hyperbole here. It was as though he was saying that this servant's debt was infinite. It was beyond his ability to pay in a hundred or thousand lifetimes. In verse 25, we see that the servant and his family, they were likely to be sold into slavery because of what they had done and couldn't pay. And, and this was a very common practice of the day as well, to go into debtor's prison until you'd paid that debt off. But the irony of this is that even being sold into slavery, even losing all of his possessions, it wouldn't have even scratched the surface on the magnitude of the debt that was owed. And so we see, according to verse 26, what did this servant do? He, he fell on his knees. He begged for mercy. And if you think about it, he, it's ridiculous that he claimed that he could somehow pay it back. Just crazy. There was no way he could do that. But to the amazement of Jesus' audience, he announces in his story that the king canceled the servant's debt. Not only would this servant not be sold into slavery, but he would not be required to make any payment of any kind. And this is radical, amazing grace. Now, as we translate this story into our own understanding, it's helpful to know that in the Jewish context of the day, stories of kings and servants were very common. And they uh, were always a picture of God and his relationship to his children. It's also important to remember that when Peter was bringing the issue to Jesus that led into this story, he was bringing up the issue related to forgiving someone, ultimately, who sins against you. And so what we need to see here is that this picture of debt is related to sin. Okay, and, and, and again, this, this picture of debt, it, it's like as if, if I held my wallet out, you know, and, and, and Darren sinned against me and then reached in and grabbed money out. You know, it's like immediately he's in debt because he, he sinned against me. And, and now as we go through life, if, if, some, if nothing's done with that debt, there is this distance between us, right? Every time I see Darren, if he does this, uh, there's going to be a tension in the room. We're all familiar with that, right? Well, the only way to resolve the tension is either for him to pay it back or for me to forgive it. There's no other way. There is no other way. Hmm. So what we're going to see here 
in verses 23 through 27, is that the broken relationship created between us and God, it's due to the infinite debt created by our sin. This means there's no way to pay it back, right? Yours and my only hope is the mercy of God to forgive. Now, I don't know how many of you have been in debt, but I'm assuming from the statistics that most of you would say you have. I remember Carrie and I got married, and this dates us a little bit, but we were at Sears shopping for a computer, okay? We were looking, maybe we weren't even shopping, we were just walking through. And I saw this Apple II computer, and I was like, I have to have that computer. And somehow we both agreed to put that on our credit card, and that was the beginning of years of just like being under that debt. As small as it was in that day, that was like huge for us. And, uh, you know, it was just an unbelievable burden, and we felt the weight of that. Carrie and I, we were sitting with a physician and his wife over dinner the other day. And the physician, he's paying off his medical school debt. And, and I don't know, know if you know this, but the average medical school debt is $162,000. And he said when, when he came out of school and was under the weight of that debt, this is what he said. He said, after feeling the weight of my financial debt, it blew me away to think of how much more weight I should feel because of the infinite debt that I owed God because of my sin. Now, though some of you, you don't need to be convinced that apart from Christ, you're a sinful mess. Some of us get that all too well. But there are others in the room who think to themselves, hey, I'm not all that bad. I'm not all that bad. Well, if this is you, just imagine if you hook up a video projection screen to your mind. And now all those thoughts that were once secret could be seen. And we can see all of the lustful and dark thoughts that you've thought and we can see all of the hateful things that you've said or meditated upon how would that make you feel i mean i would be embarrassed i would i would feel ashamed i think you'd be the same what all this emphasizes is really the truth of romans 323 But all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Which points to Romans 6.23. The wages of that sin is death. It is hell. What this means is that we all deserve infinite separation from God due to the debt of sin. But what we really need to see here, and listen closely, what we need to see here is that the magnitude of our debt has one purpose in this parable. And that is to magnify the significance of God's mercy and grace. Taking us back to the parable, Jesus was explaining to his disciples something that was about to ultimately take place on this grand level. Because within a few years, he was to be crucified on the cross in order to satisfy the weight of our debt. Right? With his blood and mercy He would endure the wrath we deserve so that like the servant, we could look up to the king and in desperation for words of life, hear him say to us, your debt has been forgiven. Now before I continue with the second half of the message, I'm going to invite the musicians to come up. And I want to invite us to just take a moment to pause at this moment in the story. 
responding to the truth we've heard. And the question that I want you to ponder while we sing is this. Are you living in awe of the mercy and grace of God? Are you living in awe? Are you living day to day, moment to moment, hour to hour, amazed at the mercy of God to forgive? See, because what we're going to see in a moment is this. We're going to see that our ability to forgive others, our ability to love as Jesus loved, is in direct proportion to our sense of gratitude and awe for the mercy of God to forgive our infinite debts. So let's stand, and we're going to join together in singing a song we learned a few weeks ago as we think more deeply and worship the Lord out of his goodness. Well, now that we've dwelled upon the beauty of this mercy of God, let's go ahead and jump in from verse 28 to the second half of this story. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant and I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, seeing the great mercy of the king, how does it make you feel that this servant did what he did? I mean, does it make you angry? It should. It should make you angry, but it should also humble you deeply. Why? Because it's humbling to recognize the fact that we too are like this unmerciful servant. Now, it's worth noting that the debt between these two was not insignificant. A hundred denarii would have been like a hundred days' wages or three months' worth of, of income. Now, of course, though it was large, it was still nothing in comparison to the infinite debt that was previously forgiven. Note in verse 29 that the second servant, he responds the exact same way the first one did. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Of course, the first servant, he shows no mercy at all, just throws him in prison. Now, let's process this in a personal way, okay? Remember with me a time in your past where you've been deeply hurt by another person. Okay, envision that moment. What was your response to the offense? Now, it's certainly understandable that we would get angry or that we would be discouraged when we're hurt by others, but how does this parable ultimately inform our response? How in particular, now listen to me, how in particular does it change your view of forgiveness when you realize that there is nothing anyone can do to you that is worse than what you did to God? Hear that again. How does it change your view of forgiveness 
when you realize that there is nothing anyone can do to you that is worse than what you did to God. Now the parable goes on in verses 32 through 35 to show that the king, learning about this first servant's behavior, he uh, enacts justice. He throws him into jail. Now it would be uh, wrong for us to interpret this as a parable teaching on salvation. That if we somehow mess up or are reluctant to forgive, that it's going to threaten our standing before God. That's not what Jesus is teaching about. But I do think it'd be an error for us to just skip by these verses and not think about their warning. Um, There are significant consequences to unforgiveness. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Karen Schwartz, MD at Johns Hopkins University, she, in an article I read that she had published, she wrote about how unforgiveness leads to depression, heart disease, diabetes, among other conditions. And according to Hebrews 12, 14 through 15, our inability to extend grace, it causes a root of bitterness in our heart to spring up and defile many people. So is there a cost to unforgiveness? Absolutely. Under God's divine providence, there is a a deep cost to unforgiveness. And it not only affects our own lives, but it affects the lives of those around us. So how is God inviting us to respond to these principles of forgiveness today? Well, to help us think through that, I'm just going to give us three three principles, really, that that help us to apply this truth in our lives today. And the first is this. Forgiveness means we no longer hold the offense against the person who hurt us. Again, forgiveness means we no longer hold the offense against the person who hurt us. Now, for those of you who are Christians, just think with me about your salvation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19, it explains that our trespasses and sins are no longer held against us by God. And in verse 21 of that passage, it explains that Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It, it gives us this example of this radical grace of God and how it is he treats us, even though that again and again we sin against him. It shows us that Full forgiveness is, is it's a restored relationship where even our status before God is not guilty. Now, so let's bring that example into human relationships based on what we've learned about God's forgiveness. For us to truly forgive someone means that the offense isn't brought up again in the future. We don't continue to bring it up every time there is a new conflict. That We, we don't go and talk to our friends about, oh, do, did you hear what he did to me? right? It means that full forgiveness is no longer allowing those past offenses to influence the way we love and relate to one another. Now, do you see how that kind of forgiveness reflects the forgiveness extended to us, the radical grace modeled for us by our Heavenly Father? So the first principle, again, it means that we no longer hold the offense against the person who hurt us. The second one is that an attitude of forgiveness should be extended to everyone, even even those who will never take responsibility for their sin. Now I get it. In this parable, we see an example of people begging for mercy. And and that's that's really actually how we should live. When you sin against someone, confess that. Invite their mercy and forgiveness and grace. But I think there's an active principle here, and that is that we should always be ready to forgive. 
We should embrace an attitude of forgiveness. Romans 12, 18 reads, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So what this is saying is, we're to make every effort on our part to extend forgiveness and reconciliation to those who've hurt us. Now, it makes clear that we're only responsible for ourselves in this, right? As it depends on us. This means our attempts to extending grace, our attempts to pursue reconciliation, they may not be received. Nonetheless, again, as far as it depends on us, we're to extend forgiveness. We're to pursue reconciliation, to do all we can to make peace with others. And this leads to the third principle, that forgiveness is not an event, but it's a process. Though we can grant forgiveness, we certainly have to understand that that full weight of, of forgiveness and reconciliation, it takes time. And it may never happen in, in this world, right? The people who have hurt us may be long gone. Or they may be resistant to change or, or unwilling to repent. I mean, this even happens, this idea happens at times in our marriage, right? I mean, if your spouse, if you're married and your spouse violates your trust in a significant way, and the reality is it's going to be hard to forgive. It's going to take time. And, and the reality is that trust needs to be built, right? And so though, yes, we embrace forgiveness by God's grace as possible, we need to recognize that sometimes the full weight of that forgiveness and the full hope of restoration, it takes time. It takes faithfulness. So I, I want you to hear that because I know some of you are hearing this message and you're feeling a lot of weightiness. And I want you to understand there's grace here. God is by one degree of glory to another changing us by his grace and mercy. But pursuing forgiveness, pursuing reconciliation is that to which we've been called. So the big idea today is that the power to forgive is found in the grace and mercy of the forgiveness we have received from God. So, if you're struggling to forgive, run to the Father. Ask him for help. Ask him to help you to embrace the full forgiveness that he's extended to you in Christ. To embrace the fact that you're accepted and loved in spite of your history, in spite of the things that you've done. Because it's only there that you'll find the power to forgive someone else. Also, if you're struggling to forgive, uh, if your conscience has been pricked, I want to encourage you, seek out community. Ask others to pray for you, to speak into that, to encourage you in that process of transformation as you seek to extend grace to those who've hurt you. And as you do these things, I believe God is faithful to remove the shackles of bitterness, to give us the ability to love others without condition, or fear. Now, remember that story that I opened at the beginning with, that story about Anne? Well, as you recall, Anne was a woman who had clearly experienced the, the pain of sin in her past, right? Through the abuse of her father, through the hand of a drunk driver who took her family away from her. Now, when I was seated in that room with her years ago, I did finally ask that question, how did you find the power to forgive? And her response was simply that God had forgiven her, so how could she not forgive others? 
But her story of grace, it didn't end there. Uh, In response to all that she had endured, she had actually given a large part of her life to a ministry to those who, she says, live in the shadows. She would travel every year to the Burning Man Festival, kind of this pagan festival out in California. She would seek out the recesses of the subcultures in our communities for those who are living in deep darkness, in the midst of deep confusion and pain, and she would minister to them. She also took up an art form where she would create sculptures modeling redemption out of barbed wire. You see, she illustrated the power of redemption by creating art with a material that was originally intended to keep others away with pain. So her past hurts weren't being used to fuel bitterness, but to empower powerful stories of grace and redemption and empathy. And it's this kind of life that's produced by the depths of God's grace and mercy. Oh, that we too would find the power to forgive with the same love and mercy by which we have been forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray specifically, first of all, with great thanks for how your word just can take very, very familiar ideas and drop them into a new depth of understanding. I pray that would happen for all of us today. I want to pray first, Lord, for the person seated in this room who has been unable to forgive themselves. Lord, I know that there are some of us who feel a great deal of shame, and uh, perhaps that's over past behaviors or just the dark thoughts of today. And Lord, I just pray first and foremost that the principle that we explored in the first half of today's sermon would just land powerfully upon them. They are forgiven. The magnitude of their debt all the more magnifies the depths of your grace and mercy to say, not guilty, you are my child, I love you, you are accepted, you are beautiful, and I am pleased with you. Lord, I pray that would land powerfully. Lord, I pray for others today whose conscience has been pricked. Maybe they thought they'd forgiven, but they recognize now they've been living in a pattern of unforgiveness that there has been a deep-seated anger in their hearts. Lord, and I pray today you would do a work of grace and mercy that lifts the burden of weight, that empowers a new way of living that is conditioned by the gratitude of grace and by the life that shows mercy as you've shown mercy to us. So do your work, we pray, Lord Jesus, and thank you for your word that is actively working to create us into something new day after day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.